For me, the total failure of the Republican Party and the conservative movement to have the gumption to stand up and the willingness to fall for this is, hey, he won, you know, so maybe we should just go for all this irresponsible and damaging stuff. That's a real indictment for me. And, and I think that really does, that makes it very different. That makes it not about Trump. It makes it about one of our two major national parties. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Bill Crystal is editor-at-large of The Bulwark. He was a founder of The Weekly Standard and is a regular guest on leading political commentary shows. Prior to his work at the Weekly Standard, Crystal led the Project for the Republican Future, an organization that helped shape the strategy that produced the 1994 Republican congressional victory. From 1985 to 1993, Crystal served as Chief of Staff to Education Secretary William Bennett in the Reagan administration, and as Chief of Staff to Vice President Dan Quayle in the George H.W. Bush administration. Before coming to Washington, Crystal taught politics at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard University. Here's our conversation with Bill Crystal. So you and I met once before briefly. I shook your hand at a, uh, I was invited to a Bank of America uh, conference talk. You were, you and Mark Shields oh. had, had kind of a round table yeah. and I thought it was very interesting. So you and I have uh, encountered each other. Oh, good. Yeah. Those are the days when you actually gave speeches and yeah. got paid for giving speeches and exactly. you know, went to travel to places. People came to con- nice conference, they, nice hotels to, to, to be, right. to be treated to golf games while they're, by the right, exactly. sponsor, exactly. whoever it was. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. That brings me back because I, I was thinking back on that talk and I was interested and you've been around so long and you're a familiar face to anyone who really cares about civic life. What is your own um, political origin story? You know, how did you, you know, come to find um, uh, conservatism to connect with you and, and become so active in, in politics? I mean, I guess my parents were intellectuals and my father was involved on the fringes of politics but more certainly about ide- writing about ideas uh was a one of the first neoconservatives as the term was uh, used in the early 70s which was sort of liberals who would become uh, as he put it uh, jo- jokingly but it got picked up mugged by reality and became more conservative and so i grew up you know in a, in a house where there was a, quite a lot of just talk about not so much about politics not, not about party politics this was in new york but about, you know, ideas and history. My mom was a historian. Then I went to school, uh, to college, and was uh, inclined. I, I was then kind of a, I don't know what you'd say, a moderate conservative Democrat, a, a Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson Democrat, for people who remember that, which means you probably have to be my age, but you could read about it, and I guess it's some history books. But, you know, Cold War, old-fashioned, kind of a moderate um, Democrat, uh, fine with the welfare state, very pro-civil rights, uh, but, but tough on foreign policy and, you know, respectful of markets, not a, not a socialist. And um, that was kind of my orientation. I, I volunteered for the Scoop Jackson campaign for president in 1972 when I was a student at Harvard. And Scoop ran, I think, seventh in Massachusetts, the beginning of my very successful political career. Uh, and then I was sort of, I was close to, uh, I was a teaching assistant to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I was close to him. He was a friend of my parents, too. I worked for his Senate campaign in the summer of 76. Um, and then, um, and he won actually a close primary and then got my degree, went off to teach and was more conservative probably, or anyway, the times were changing. The Carter presidency was kind of a failure. So I was for Reagan by 1980. 
I taught a few more years at that point, but then I went to Washington in 85 to work in the Reagan administration. So that's kind of my, my trajectory from sort of uh, very skeptical liberal. I'd read Bill Buckley as a kid. I'm a skeptical liberal who's interested in conservative ideas, I guess I would put it, to a pretty full-fledged, though somewhat maybe still skeptical on the other side and not quite orthodox uh, conservative by the mid-80s. What was the, uh, the idea around conservatism that kind of pulled you in the most? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think at that day, I would have to say anti-communism sort of being clear-eyed and not wishful about the Soviet Union about, and about other threats to liberal democracy. So I felt to me like the people I admired, whether it was Winston Churchill, um, who was a conservative politician in Britain, obviously, or, or Harry Truman, who was a Democrat, but a, a tough Democrat, uh, they were anti-fascist. They were anti, um, obviously, they were, they were you know, part, part, part of the fight against Hitler in World War II, but also against the America First types who wanted to stay out of that fight in 1939, 1940, 1941. So I admired their willingness to take on that form of totalitarian dictatorship and then their willingness to take on, obviously, Stalin and the Soviet Union after. So I've got to think that was the most important part. It's always hard to analyze yourself, you know? I mean, I don't know quite, I'm sure there were a million psychological reasons and I didn't like my peers and maybe I wasn't, you know, I was rejected by them in high school. So I turned against them because they were all new left. This is the late sixties in New York on the Upper West Side of New York. And so maybe it was all, you know, psychology and grievance and uh, social shunning and so forth. But I, you know, I used to joke that I, I rejected my generation rather than rejecting my parents. All, all my friends were kind of rebelling against their parents. Mm-hmm. I kind of looked at my parents and I kind of liked and admired them. And I looked at my peers and I thought, you know, they don't really know very much. And they're sort of, they want to overturn everything that's happened for what, you know, will they study this stuff really? So um, I had that kind of skepticism, I'd say about the kind of utopianism and idealism of the left in the late sixties and early seventies. And that, that lasted then for quite a while in, in terms of beyond the foreign policy stuff I mentioned, a kind of you know, skepticism about good intentions being enough, kind of hard, attempt to be hard-headed about public policy choices. I read people like Hayek. I, my father edited the Public Interest magazine, which was pretty empirical and sort of showed that a lot of government programs didn't quite work the way people thought and that markets do kind of work pretty well. And, you know, a lot of people can get wealthier, even if it's somewhat unevenly and maybe unfairly distributed. And so I think all of that together, but but I'd say for me, probably the anti-communism on the one hand and the skepticism of a kind of too easy somewhat utopian progressivism like that we will you know we just we know which direction history is going and we just need to to go in that direction because i had read enough at that point to realize that an awful lot of people thought in the 20s and 30s that history was going in the direction of i don't know the soviet union and that was a good thing and and it wasn't so you have um anti-communism as the the main um kind of uh, attraction and you're skeptical of of your peers as you say and then you become chief of staff for William Bennett and then chief of staff for Vice President Quayle. And that's right when the wall is falling. I have to believe that for you, that had to be a, a really heady time because you made a bet and it turns out that the bet looks pretty good at that point. You know, that's a good point. And I haven't really, uh, I mean, of course, I, I've thought a lot about the fall of the wall. And I remember vividly watching it and so forth, but I, uh, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. I do think the 
Yes, I think certainly those of us who felt like we were young Reaganites, you know, I came to Washington in 85, I guess, what, 32 or so, um, you know, to work as a foot soldier in the Reagan revolution. I started as a special assistant to Phil Bennett at the education department, not, not at the center of action of the action, you'd say, for the important stuff. But, you know, we did our, we did our bit and then I became his chief of staff and then I was in the White House for from 89 to 93. And so that was closer to the center of the action as, you know, the Berlin Wall came down. So that was exciting. And I think we all felt a sense that, you know what, we were right. Everyone laughed at us. Everyone said Reagan was too old. Everyone said Reagan might cause a nuclear war. Everyone said it was simple-minded for him to say that, you know what, we could actually defeat the Soviet Union, not just contain it, not just deal with it for the next 50 years. People forget how crazy that sounded when Reagan said it in 1979, 1980, 81, including to a lot of conservatives who were worried that he was like much too, much too hopeful about that. I think that had a huge amount to do with a kind of... Um, Yes, a sense of vindication, a sense of confidence that, well, look, we were right about the single biggest thing facing America at the time. And so we're probably right about a lot of other things. And I would say, secondly, the other thing we, I think that happened that probably gave us a sense of confidence that was probably really a sense of overconfidence was markets. I mean, 70s, stagnation, inflation, you know, uh, one forgets again, uh, Jimmy Carter, I don't think he actually used the word malaise, but the malaise speech and you know, people felt like it could all be running down. I mean, the, these 25 good years after World War II, maybe that wasn't going to last. Capitalism was kind of defeating, the you know, self-destructive. Um, and then in the 80s, the comeback in the U.S. under Reagan, really across Europe, I'd say, especially with Thatcher and, and Britain, but in other countries too, with it basically moves towards deregulation and free markets. And I wouldn't underestimate, people don't think much about this, but it, it certainly had an effect on me. China and then India. And again, it's not like I was closely following, you know, politics or economics in China or India. I'm no expert. But, you know, China uh, didn't relax the political system much. There's no, no, no great outpouring of liberty. But, I mean, people who, a country that had had a billion people on the edge of starvation almost, you know, suddenly becomes a, you know, economic, uh, a place where people are living decent lives and moving into the middle class and so forth. And then India a few years later, and those were both pretty explicitly a rejection in the case of India of a kind of British socialism. And in the case of China, obviously of, of, of real Maoist Marxism and a movement towards markets, globalization, as they now call it, integration in the world economy, free trade, free labor. And, you sort of look at all that and you think, you know what, that, that was also pretty much the right side to be on. So the two biggest things, the, the sort of fight against communism, the international liberal order that the U.S. was at the core of, and then the fight against socialism, let's say. I mean, fights may be too strong, but the debate between markets and central planning. And both of those, I guess we, a lot of us felt you know, pretty vindicated at around 19, by around 1990 or the early 90s. Yeah, I would say that the, the, those on the conservative side of that argument with respect to the Soviet Union did come out vindicated. Anne Applebaum in her book makes a really interesting point that we discussed with her, and I was, I was curious to get your, your view on it. She, she actually points out that, you know, at that time during the Cold War, you know, conservatism was looked at very mono, as a monolith, you know, but in reality, once the Soviet bloc fell, it was really the beginning of this splintering of these different kinds of conservatives. You know, there was social conservatives and of course, you know, uh, 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 foreign policy conservatives. 
And that really, you know, in the absence of that um, cohesion around that common cause to fight communism, she traces, you know, sort of what we're going through now back to that point. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I would say I was always interested as an intellectual matter when I studied political philosophy. That was when I got my degree and I taught it, you know, in the different strains of conservatism. So it wasn't really a problem for me that there were libertarians, there was Friedrich Hayek, there were traditionalists. Uh, Burke is usually, you know, associated with that group. They were obviously more sort of standard, if I can say, foreign policy hawks, where you just got to be strong and fight dictators, you know, and, and many things in between and, and religious and non-religious. And it was interesting thinking about the different you know, schools of conservatism, the different thinkers, what they had in common, what they didn't. Yeah, I think as a practical matter, the anti-communism held it together pretty well. If you were a religious person, communism was not just atheistic, it persecuted believers, obviously. If you were a free market person, obviously you didn't think central planning worked. And if you were believed in liberty, you, you didn't think the Soviet Union was a good model. So it, it almost uniquely brought together those different strands um, and obviously, once the Soviet Union went, there were still regimes to dislike very much. There were still aspects of the left that had much milder versions of those mistakes that you could fight. And that's probably what held the conservatives together for the next decade or so, you know, was not, not the horrors of the Soviet Union, but fighting of sort of uh, milder versions of, of left-wing mistakes. But yeah, I think it increasingly did become probably a, an opposition movement rather than uh, something that had a real necessarily had a positive vision. And then, and, and, and gradually, and I'm not, I was thinking about this just the other day. I mean, it's hard to put your finger on when these things happen, but sort of during the nineties and, and the next decade, it, it just became, I now see in retrospect, I don't think I felt that I didn't feel this at the time I was editing weekly standard magazine and publishing a lot of good stuff. And there was a lot of interesting and thoughtful stuff. I don't want to now overly, deprecate, you know, these things that I admired at the time. But in retrospect, I think we all became too oppositional. We all, but I'll just speak for myself. I became too, too oppositional, too kind of uh, uh, dark about what was happening and therefore sort of somewhat radicalized in my opposition to things that in retrospect, either weren't that bad, maybe they weren't bad at all, or they were just changes that were going to happen anyway because of technology or because of social, you know, uh, habits and, and, and morals. And, you know, they were sort of a mixed bag and, and anyway, you couldn't, you weren't going to really fight them. So what was the point of getting, you know, all upset? And I think, I think that if you look, I think when historians look back at it, they'll see a real movement from a kind of happy warrior side of conservatism in the, 70s and 80s. That was one of the big appeals for me, I'd say, as a young person. Bill Buckley, fun, lively, cheerful. My parents, I mean, others, Reagan himself, older, but I mean, of course, very much young, young in spirit, you could say, right? Jack Kemp, you know, the kind of happy warrior side of it. And it became gradually um, less so uh, over the 90s and then into the 21st century. We had uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser on uh, the podcast to talk about their book about James Baker. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was interesting was how James Baker felt that by the time he gets to 94, thinking about a run for the presidency in 96, he realizes that it's a different party. Is that kind of what you're saying about kind of the radicalization? Do you see, see it happening that early or is it later for you? You know, I don't know. And I, I maybe Jim, maybe Baker saw things that I was, I didn't see. I was kind of enthusiastic about 
some of what Gingrich was doing. And, and in some ways, of course, that was also a, a youth movement and a kind of fresh blood. And Newt Gingrich was shoving aside Bob Michael, who was you know, 20 years older, I suppose, and kind of the old fashioned Midwestern Republican. I, I now feel more warmly to those people, you know, when I, once I had a slight, I never disliked them, but I just didn't, I didn't kind of respect them maybe as much as I should have the Gerald Fords and Bob Doles and Bob Michaels. But um, so I was a little too enthusiastic probably about the sort of uh, the forces of change and uh, at that point. Um, and I probably didn't want to see the kind of somewhat nasty underside of it, you know, and so I kind of just didn't focus on that. And, and to be fair to us, we fought the nasty underside of it. You know, people sometimes often ask me now post-Trump, you know, well, did you see this stuff was there? I mean, didn't you see it was coming? And I always say, yes, of course. But, you know, I spent a good part of the 90s fighting against Pat Buchanan, both in practice. I was in the White House in 92 when he challenged Bush and we fought him. And, and then in 96, I opposed him in the primaries and, and denounced him and, you know, was happy when he left the Republican Party in 99, 2000 uh, and, and fought against those elements of the right. And then subsequently with other such, you know, figures. So it wasn't that we didn't know those things were there. We thought they were kind of under control or discredited or that we could beat them back when we had to. And if you look at the presidential nominees and the leaders of the party and the Senate and so forth, you know, it was a pretty respectable group. I have no big apologies about voting for Bush or McCain, certainly, or Romney. But I did, even in real time, I, I mean, there were, I was always a little more heterodox. The Weekly Standard, the magazine I edited, was always a little more uh, um, idiosyncratic and unpredictable than uh, some of the other conservative organs, the Wall Street Journal, National Review. So for example, we started the magazine in September of 95. We supported Bill Clinton's intervention in Bosnia in December of 95, I think it was. Um, uh, Bob Kagan and I wrote an editorial supporting it. And I think you know, a fifth of our subscribers canceled their subscriptions because they didn't subscribe as one of them wrote to, you know, to some conservative magazine to read editorials supporting Bill Clinton. So I don't think I was ever fully caught up in the kind of we're just against everything the left does or or that kind of spirit that I think Jim Baker might have been seeing but um but I probably minimized how much of that spirit there was and how much of the energy came from that 9-11 there was of course a real rallying around so that probably also I don't know delayed isn't quite the right word but but uh submerged that for several years as we all pulled together in those various fights and so um, really, that stuff really became visible to me, I would say, uh, in the Obama years. I, I I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. I mean, the birther stuff, for example, which I just thought was ludicrous. I said it was ludicrous on Fox. Most of the people on Fox thought it was ludicrous. So it wasn't as if it was taking over the right or anything. But the fact that Trump could get away with it and and, and people just kind of let him go on and and that there wasn't more of a reaction to what was so obviously a just made up, you know, so the beginning of the contempt for truth, you could really see it there and be basically racist. Um, you know, the fact that people in retrospect, the fact that we just weren't more alarmed by that is uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's a bit of an indictment of us. Yeah. I think that's a ongoing question. People are wondering what it is that, happened and, and why it is that people did accept that? Why did he get away with it? It's still a question that's ongoing. 
a lot of this also gets overdetermined, if that's the right word, or, you know, once Trump wins, of course, everyone's, oh, my God. But, you know, if think of it this way. If Trump hadn't run, which is certainly possible, he had toyed with running and didn't before. Or if he had run and just not gotten lucky and had a divided field, one of these other candidates would have better and he just lost, which was certainly possible. He didn't get the majority of the vote and the primary is still quite late. You know, we'd all be looking at Trump as we looked at Ron Paul, probably, or Pat Buchanan, and, you know, kind of weird. And it's kind of kind of disturbing that he got so many votes. But um, on the other hand, we would have ended up nominating another McCain-Romney type, and and that would have made a big difference. I mean, history is contingent that way, as, as you know. And so the, the notion that it was all inevitably going to end up where it did in the Trump presidency, I don't, I don't agree with that. Having said that, it's foolish to go to the other extreme and say, you know, the Trump presidency just came from nowhere and there were no uh, hints of it and no uh, indications of it beforehand that we should have been more alert to. My, my colleague, Charlie Sykes, has a good formulation for, I think it's his formulation for this, that uh, it turns out Trumpism or let's say nativism, authoritarianism, all of that um, was a recessive gene in the Republican Party and, and really in the conservative movement. It was there, it was more, it was more there than we wanted to think about but it was recessive so that, you know, you can have a recessive gene for a long time. And if it stays submerged, it stays submerged and it never quite has that much real effect. One wacky congressman here, Steve King or something, one oddball governor there. But, you know, it doesn't determine the main thrust of, of, of the party or the movement. Sure. I mean, you see the extremism on, on the left as well, but they... You know, uh, unlike what some people would like to argue, the truth is the far left does not control the Democratic Party. Right. Now, you know, that's also, though, somewhat contingent in the sense that uh, Joe Biden won, you know, and he he won in South Carolina and Jim Clyburn helped him. African-American Democrats really saved the center of the Democratic Party. um, Totally. And uh, the great, great. Uh, I, I pay great tribute to them for that. But yes, I agree. As of now, it's an, it's a, what do those political scientists call it? An asymmetric situation. Sure. And, um, in and in 2016, they didn't nominate Bernie Sanders. They nominated right. Hillary Clinton. You know, so. Yeah. You know, I used to give you and I were joking before about uh, you were once being at some conference where I, was on, I gave a speech or, with Mark Shields. But I used to say in, in the days when we went to conferences and gave speeches and so forth, I used to have sort of a standard thing, which I think was kind of true right in the middle of 2016 and then shortly after that to think about 2016 it wasn't enough just to focus on trump though god knows everyone was totally focused on trump especially once he won and big surprise in november but if you step back if you came out from mars and just looked at the primaries in 2016 the most astounding thing was sanders getting 45 percent of the vote in the democratic side trump getting actually about the same 43 i think it was percent of the vote on the republican side or all in you know which means almost half of each of the two major parties of the electorate, there was a big turnout in both parties, uh, voting for candidates who were way outside the mainstream, the conventional types of candidates either party has nominated. And I'm not equating Sanders and Trump in terms of you know, moral character or anything like that, but just as a kind of political science matter. And then the next thing to say about that, and I would say in these speeches is, if you told a historian, okay, here's what happened. Suddenly, you know, we're having these kind of normal elections, so I could put it that way, Obama, McCain, Obama, Romney, Paul Ryan becomes the VP, Joe Biden. It looks pretty much like normal American politics, you know. And then suddenly we have an election in which uh, Sanders gets uh, 45% of the vote and Trump 43. What's happened? The historian would probably say, I don't know, was there like a huge recession? Was there a terribly failed war like Vietnam or worse? I mean, ha- riots? I mean, ha- you, you know, you don't just sort of go overnight. 
The irony is there wasn't. Now, there had been. So this is where it gets a little complicated. Maybe there was an after effect of 2008. Maybe it was an after effect even of Iraq, et cetera. But the irony is, you know, if you look at America from 2013 to 2016, there are problems. The growth is deeply divided. The comeback is kind of slow from the recession, you know, some foreign policy setbacks. But I mean, it, it doesn't look like a country that's about to have so much dissatisfaction in it that it produces Sanders and Trump. So that is a deeper question about America and about the country, obviously. But I I do very much agree that if you step back, you'd look at the two phenomena somewhat together, Sanders and Trump, for all the differences. But yeah, but then one wins the nomination, the other doesn't. One wins the presidency, the other doesn't. And then the next time the other guy runs, he also doesn't win the nomination and Joe Biden wins the presidency. You end up with two parties in very different places. Yeah, it's interesting because it shows you the the power of marketing. Um, you know, uh, during the Obama administration, they had the longest run of job growth in the history of the country. And so you're right. You would think that just from that, which is such a primary interest for people, which is can I can I provide for my family, um, that having the longest job growth streak in the country would at least give some momentum. And yet it seemed like there was none that existed. And I'm just wondering if you feel like you know, we've talked a lot on this show about kind of the perniciousness of, of Reagan's first inaugural address and in saying that government is the problem. I'm just wondering if you think that we, we've become kind of soft babies about the country that, that is before us and the work that has to be put in to have the life that you want to have. If we've just, we expect perfection, that's the standard. And when we don't get it, we've got someone to blame and it's an easy out. So I, I generally, you know, I'm inclined to agree with that kind of analysis. On the other hand, in this one case, I, I would even just dwell on it a little bit more, the, the very good point you made at the beginning, which is, again, so I was on the Republican side, more or less, uh, through these years. So for me, it was like, good that Obama didn't get much momentum out of 2009 and out of the recovery package. And, you know, I was reasonably cheerful that the Republicans uh, won, won the House in, in 2010 and so forth, thought Romney had a good chance and. 2012. In retrospect, though, it's a kind of if you put on your political science kind of hat. I mean, Republicans had governed for eight years. And again, I respect Bush. I've been from McCain, but whatever. Uh, you know, the Iraq war turned out to be based on bad intelligence and wasn't fought well. We recovered near the end with the surge and so forth. And then we have a total meltdown of the global economy. You can blame Bush. You can blame the housing market. You can blame the, the Fed. You can blame, you know, a million things. But at the end of the day, the way politics works, if you're in you know, it's like a lot of other things in life, right? If you're in there in charge, you normally get blamed. What's really amazing is how little he and the Republicans got blamed. They got wiped out. They had bad election in 06 and a very bad election in 08. So they did lose a ton of seats. I don't mean to imply that they, but I mean, the speed of the comeback in 09, 10 is a little startling. And it's not, again, Obama, it was a slow recovery. And Obama did some things in retrospect that were foolish, I think, politically and so forth in terms of doing Obamacare before he did other things, whatever. But it's kind of amazing that he got, I mean, I think if you were, I can see why my Democratic friends were kind of going crazy by 2013, 14, 15, just politically. It's like, hey, the last Republican administration left things the way Herbert Hoover left things. We're coming back. The, the recovery was okay. It wasn't great, but it was pretty steady and it lasted a long time. We got out of these wars. People like me were worried about the effects of that, I think, correctly. But nonetheless, if you just looked at the world, we weren't fighting in very tough places in the way we had been in 2005, you know, six. obviously. Um, you know, things weren't too bad around the world. 
and uh, the country was chugging along. And it's amazing how little credit Obama and the Democrats really got. Again, if you compare it to the 30s or something where, you know, Hoover and the Republicans were discredited for 20 years. And I don't know quite why that is. Is Is it the new technological and social media world we live in? Is it that there was a you know, prejudice against Obama that meant that a different Democrat would have done much better. Was it that they messed up certain tactical decisions that didn't allow them, you know, if he had had FDR's shrewdness, he could have kind of kept, you know, much been much stronger politically. But it, I am struck by that in retrospect that, I mean, the, the two, they paid very little price for this. I mean, the 2008 meltdown was really bad. And I don't need to tell you guys. And, uh, it's sort of amazing. Now we did come back and it didn't melt down. I mean, the world, stag- we made it, we avoided going off the cliff. And people did kind of forget that pretty quickly. I mean, the amount of complacency, this was true in the markets, of course, and maybe still true, right? That there is, you know, this is like this, people now talk about that as if it happened A, 100 years ago and B, could never happen again because yeah. we've like, fixed everything. I don't know, have we really? But I don't know. But so anyway, it's a long way of saying that I think it's, um, it's just been an interesting, it's been interesting how people's memories do or don't work and how that affects things politically. Maybe there was a delayed reaction with Trump and Sanders, though, to be fair. And maybe the Trump anti-elite, anti-establishment message in particular was a kind of culmination of stuff that almost got repressed a little bit. You know, Romney was not a good messenger if you wanted mm-hmm. to really shake things up, right? And so Paul Ryan, the speaker, didn't make you think, oh my God, this guy's going to totally take it to them, the people who messed up everything. But uh, Obama kept, I think this was a good decision, but he kept Bob Gates, Bush's defense secretary. Secretary, so it wasn't like, oh my God, we're just flushing all these people out, you know? <laughs> so maybe there's a kind of delayed, pent up, uh, anger in a way that that Trump was able to capitalize on. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, the global housing, the, the housing crisis here, which led to the global financial crisis. I mean, you you can trace a lot of this anti-elite, anti-establishment, anti-capitalist sentiment that you see both in the Trump movement and the Bernie Sanders movement. A lot of that really kind of simmered to a boil coming out of the global financial crisis. It's it's interesting how it's different sides of the same coin, really. Yeah, my conservative friends would say it's even ironic because, of course, a lot of the how I mean, a lot, some of the housing crisis, I think people do sort of agree on this, don't they? That I mean, was due to an attempt to spread the wealth more sure. and, in effect, relax lending requirements, which That's led right. to the bubble, right? I mean, so it's a, it's sort of like you, I mean, it was kind of a liberal impulse, if you, if you That's will, right. that led both Democratic and Republican administrations in the late 90s and Clinton and then Bush to kind of go in that direction, Congress to go in that direction. That's right. You saw Glass-Steagall fall in the late 90s during Clinton's years, and then George Bush promote the ownership society. Yeah. Every, everyone you know, has, should have a stake in their community, in their cities. And of course, it turned into a massive bubble, and, and, and we know the rest. You know, and, and like most things in, in human affairs, uh, sometimes a good thing is carried to an extreme, and greed takes over, and, 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 and behavior becomes kind of unmoored from what is good uh, common sense, and then you have, um, you know, an implosion, which we all have to pick up the pieces. And I think what was shocking at the time to me, I just say watching it, and I was at that time editing a magazine, writing columns, but I, mean, I wasn't you know, involved, but and I'm not an economist, was, yeah, okay, fine, everyone understands they're going to be bubbles, they're going to burst, 99, 2000 with tech, and they're going to be bear markets and so forth, and housing prices aren't always going to go up. 
it was the lack of guard, apparent lack of guardrails. It was the fact that the elites were so, the Fed was so caught by surprise. I guess that really became clearer when they released the Fed minutes later. I remember looking at them once. And uh, people really were just frantically figuring out what to do. And we'd sort of been told for decades that, you know, they've kind of figured this out, the economists, you know, they've kind of spread risk and they have a million things, mechanisms in place, and we're never going to have like a real meltdown again. We'll have ups and downs, you know, and it was the meltdown side of it, I think, that really sort of freaked people out and freaked me out a little. And it's like, geez, do these guys really know what they're doing? You know, first they tell us there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That's kind of one thing we're supposed to be kind of good at is you know, kind of high level intelligence about enemies of ours and we've just fought and, you know, all this technical uh, capabilities we have. And then we have all these economists and the Fed and Alan Greenspan and they're supposed to be able to, again, not prevent there being recessions, but prevent the total kind of, you know, um, catastrophic meltdown where one thing leads to another. Mm. And it turned out, yeah, neither of these was really quite as quite as in place as possible as, as we thought. And now with Trump, I would say there's been another case where the guardrails turned out to be much weaker than we hoped, which was various forms of democratic, you know, institutions and the rule of law and, and so forth. So all of that, I do think has people thinking, you know, are things as solid as we thought they were? Well, that's actually exactly what I'd want to follow up on, which is that, you know, you talk about the guardrails and wow, Trump exposed just how much, personal restraint is required for good governance. And um, I'd love for you to talk more about over the Trump administration, what is it that created the most fear in you about the guardrails that can voluntarily come off? For me, and I, I can't speak for Ed, but I think Ed, you and I have talked about this. For me, it was the Justice Department. Uh, I got a little freaked out by just how this can simply be personalized. Um, I just, I, I'm not sure what I was expecting. I think I was expecting um, maybe a, a better Senate confirmation process, or maybe I was expecting more um, prosecutors inside the Justice Department to walk out. I'm not really sure what I was expecting, but I'd, I'd love to hear what your big fear was during those times. Yeah, I mean, I, there were a lot of guardrails that turned out not to be as strong as we thought, or, or in any case, I suppose we shouldn't have been surprised by this. I mean, depend on human beings manning the guardrails, if you want to torture this metaphor a little bit. And these things are not, uh, people got to start saying by 2018, 19 was absolutely correct. These things are not self-enforcing. I mean, people need to stand up and now there are institutions in place to help you enforce them. So that's good, you know, and there's uh, rules and, and, and mechanisms. And, and, a lot, and a lot of those did hold, obviously, I would say. I think the executive branch reasonably well, most places, quite well in the military and defense, uh, where they're the most institutionalized, obviously, the most codified. And uh, But I, you know, throughout the government, it, it turned out it's not so easy to turn the U.S. executive branch into a one-man kind of... Uh, and there can be a lot of bad stuff that can happen and a lot of grifters can get put in and God knows when they look closely at the books of all those agencies over the next year or two, what, what they're going to find. But ultimately, you know, the rule of law more or less held in America in the sense that people weren't being snatched off the streets. And so far as we know, you know, millions of dollars, most of the time were not disappearing from the books and you didn't have kind of Putin or, you know, Maduro type theft and so forth. Trump personally a little different with him. The president has the least constraint, you know, that's one of the ironies of our system. And he was able to get away with stuff that 
actually some assistant secretary, you know, couldn't have and was there. The IG still existed. I mean, the, the Ukraine thing is so interesting because it was a case where Trump tried to do something really illegitimate. And the system did kind of stop him. A whole bunch of foreign service officers, ambassadors, uh, the IG, actually, if you recall. Now, those people got sort of wiped. Trump got rid of almost all of them. And the system was getting pretty weak by 2020. And it's why people like me were so terrified, really, by the thought of a Trump re-election. That you're, you're, you're it's sort of putting him in charge in 2016, where there's a pretty robust system in place. Very different from putting him back in charge in 2020, when a lot of the stuff had already gone. For me, the greatest threat was, was the total failure of the Republican Party, and therefore, I would say, of Congress to stand up to Trump. Um, that is to say, if you, here's the, I think the way to think about this maybe is, uh, I mean, people like me thought Trump shouldn't be president. We thought he'd be a bad president. But even I kind of thought, look, he'll be bad. It's sort of like having some CEO or coach of a team or something, doesn't know what he's doing, is arbitrary, is mean-spirited, is, he can screw things up pretty badly. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the party's not going to really go, it will stop him from doing the worst things. Congress will stop him from doing the worst things. He'll be kind of isolated almost, you know, and it'll sort of be like, you know, kind of a bad few years, but the system makes it through, you know, um, sort of the way you imagine some massive corporation, I don't know, if CEO made a mistake, if Coca-Cola made a mistake and appointed someone who shouldn't be CEO, CEO, one has the vague impression that four years later, Coca-Cola's market share would have gone down from, you know, I'm making this up obviously from 32.3% to 31.6%. And, you know, there'd be some people resigning because they were disgruntled, but it wouldn't like change fundamentally the fact that Coca-Cola is Coca-Cola, you know? I mean, it turns out that, but what made it possible for Trump to do so much damage, and I think he did a lot, is the enabling, uh, the fact that the Republican Party enabled him, the elected officials in the Senate and the House and then across the country and then the voters. And it was a bit of a vicious cycle. Once the voters were on board, then the elected officials were scared to speak up against him. Once they were scared to speak up against him, the voters didn't see what why they should be against him. And so by 2020, we had a party that was entirely enthralled to Trump. I don't know that one would have predicted that. If you look at other examples of people like Trump winning, they tend to be, even in America, I mean, governors are very different from presidents, but Jesse Ventura in Minnesota or Schwarzenegger, who had not quite fair to him because he's a more serious person, but still Schwarzenegger in California, you know, they did their thing. They were governors. They didn't, they did well on some things, not so well on some things. And then kind of, you know, they left and life went on, right? You didn't have this real Trump phenomenon that you had here. And for me, the total failure of the Republican Party and the conservative movement to have the gumption to stand up and even the, and the whiz, and, and also the willingness to fall for this is, hey, he won, you know, so maybe we should just go for all this irresponsible and damaging stuff. That's a real indictment for me. And, and I think that really does, that makes it very different. That makes it not about Trump. It makes it about one of our two major national parties. Yeah. And we see this now as we're speaking, the, you know, being enthralled to Trump, even after he's been out of office for almost two months, and after January 6th, and after everyone said, oh, my God, that's the last step. We can't now. We just have, that's it. Forget it. It turns out, you know what? It's not, they haven't forgotten it because he has a lot of voters who, who continue to be supportive of him. Well, it makes me want to ask what will sound like a tough question. And it's not coming from someone who's a Democrat because I'm not a Democrat. Mm-hmm. It makes me want to ask, what is the purpose of the Republican Party today? Why does it exist? Because it seems to me... You know, you have a political coalition that is ostensibly 
conservative. And yet, you know, they offered no platform this summer at their convention other than a letter saying we support Donald Trump's, uh, quote, America first agenda. And for a political independent like myself, I interpret that as just simply no one's asking on that side for my vote. They're not asking me to consider, even consider. Um, So why does the Republican Party exist today? So I think it's a totally legitimate question. I'm sort of where you are in the sense of not knowing that it really deserves to exist in a funny way. And if I could snap my fingers, I might invent some new moderate conservative party, but that's not quite how the world works. And the bad news from our point of view, if I can, so we can, uh, I think we're, since I would associate myself with what you just said is not enough people made the decision you made or the judgment you made that, well, if they're not going to have a platform, how can you vote for them? They did pretty well. This is the thing that's keeping Trump alive. And that I'd say liberal types in the media, Democrats who are happy Biden won, and I supported Biden, so I'm happy he won. They haven't really internalized. If you're a Republican in the House, you picked up 12 seats. In the Senate, you did lose the Senate, but that was kind of fluky with Georgia, you tell yourself, and it's still 50-50. There's one more, I think, Republican governor than there was before Election Day, and I think they didn't lose any state legislatures. So their view is, you know, Trump was little crazy and then put off some voters. And he, so he lost an extra point or two. And that made the difference, obviously, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, et cetera. But, um, you know, just get kind of a slightly less temperamental and less belligerent version of Trump. He, we, you know, we kind of can get back in power. Mitch, uh, Kevin McCarthy, everyone's been ridiculing him for the last two months, going back and forth, zigzagging, you know, kowtowing to Trump, pretending to be a little independent, back to kowtowing in Mar-a-Lago. He kind of thinks to himself, that's been a little annoying and kind of maybe a little embarrassing, frankly. But you know what? I've held it together. I got this party that has 211 members of the House, and we're probably going to win the House in the normal off-year election in 2022. And so they don't feel as if they've been humiliated by the voters or rejected or repudiated by the voters. And indeed, it's almost, it's worse. They sort of feel like all the stuff that you just said that I've said, you know, many times, I can't believe it. They don't even have a platform. They paid no price. They paid no, at the end of the day, there was a terrible pandemic, horribly mismanaged. The economy fell apart and Trump lost a couple percent more votes than he did basically, I mean, get more votes, absolutely. But in percentage terms, got about the same vote, I guess you'd say he got in 2016, but Biden did better than Hillary, obviously the third party vote went away. So, uh, and so Trump lost, but he didn't get blown out. It wasn't Herbert Hoover. It wasn't sort of like, we've got to rethink everything. It wasn't Mondale in 1984. And so, they don't see the need for the fundamental rethinking that I think a lot of us would. And so then it does raise the question, well, what is this party except for kind of carrying on trying to continue the Trump agenda and spirit and, and worse than the agenda is some of the policies are, you know, it's sort of such a mixed bag. It's hard to know what to even make of them, but the whole spirit of, of just capitalizing on people's anxieties and, and demonizing opponents and demagoguery and so forth the party's pretty well invested in that. So for me, yeah, it's hard to see what the case is, you know, for thinking of oneself still as a Republican. I think it's important for people like me who have a little bit of, you know, been in the Republican Party a long time to say we want, do want to help the decent Republicans with like if a young person, you know, with the people who voted for impeachment and conviction. I've talked to a lot of young people who think of themselves as Republicans, you know, just they kind of grew up in the 10, 15 years ago, and they liked Bush and McCain, and they were kind of hawkish, and and they're trying to decide, I mean, maybe I'd like to run for Congress, but I don't know, can I run as a Republican? But then I'm a little nervous about the Democrats, or mm-hmm. with a little, what do I do? I've had several conversations, and I don't know. I mean, I 
you know, my main advice is sort of do what you want kind of. And, you know, you run once and you lose, that happens. And you can switch parties incidentally a few years from now. Don't feel like you're making a once in a lifetime decision. But uh, I've been reluctant to encourage a lot of my friends are a little more in the we're Republican parties coming back. We're going to take it back from Trump. And, and, you know, we got to, we got to get into that fight. And I'm just a little, um, I, I respect people who are doing that, but I'm reluctant to tell some young person, yeah, this is what you should be doing for the next five or 10 or 20 years, because I'm not sure it's, it's doable at this point. And really the Ryan, I wrote a piece in the bulwark a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, maybe we just need to think of ourselves as allies of Joe Biden at this point, mm-hmm. Republican ish allies, more conservative allies, uh, allies will be critical at many times, but basically rooting for the success of Biden and the Biden administration, helping them succeed to the degree we can, which is limited. But, you know, there are things, times when we probably can see some of the traps that the liberals and progressives don't see. We kind of, yeah. you know, you more used to the attacks on them from the center and from the right. Uh, and isn't that really a healthier attitude than right away the moment January 20th passes saying, okay, we got to get back to being the opposition. And so I'm, I'm sort of more in the independent allied with Joe Biden for now camp than in the, yep, things are going to be great with the Republican Party camp. Well, that brings me to what I wanted to ask you about with respect to the Biden coalition and coalitions in general in this country. You know, we're a young country and there have been these realignments from time to time, you know, and this era has made me think a lot about whether or not we are in the midst, the beginning of a, of a new realignment. And, you know, so we talk about the Biden coalition, you know, it's very broad. It, it begins with the progressive left and it includes traditional or moderate and moderate Democrats. Uh, independents like me got sucked into it, seeing no alternative yeah. on, on the right. Um, but it also includes pro-democracy, pro-constitution, pro-institution Republicans, you know, and I'm not talking about you know, hardline never Trumpers. I'm talking about people who maybe would have agreed on the margins with some of Trump's policies and would have been totally fine with advancing some of those ideas, but couldn't uh, c- couldn't accept the conduct and character of a person like that. Someone who would uh, deliberately subvert democracy, you know, for for his own good. Um, so this is a very broad coalition right now that, that, that Biden enjoys. And we all, of course, want the president to succeed, particularly in a time where we're engaged in this national project of, of, of overcoming a pandemic. So my question is, or maybe not a question, but I'm wondering if you might comment or think out loud about this, you know, is, is, are the conservatives that, that, that supported Biden in the election and this broad coalition, is this really sort of the new left and right, so to speak. And, and it's, it's this pro-democratic movement versus this autocratic group on the other side. And it's really up to us to hold Biden accountable, to push back against, you know, the worst ideas from the far left and really, you know, try to um, make this a strong and, and, and vibrant uh, democratic coalition that has the right tension between left and right and sort of keep pushing against this, this, these autocratic intuitions that for some reason won't die out. Yeah, I think you've said it very well. And you pretty much said what I, what I think. And, um, you know, what that means, practice, obviously, where you support him, where you don't legislatively. Uh, if there's a good Republican member of Congress, you probably su- maybe support that member, especially, you know, Jamie Herrera Butler or someone who voted courageously for impeachment. On the other hand, you sort of think, gee, but if I support her and she's still going to vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker, 
And uh, if he wins, if they pick up five seats, it's a little tough. I don't approve of that. So there's some really tough and I mean, uh, difficult, I mean, choices of the kind that real politics involves, right? I mean, it's not like this is true in life in general. There are a lot of trade-offs and, 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 and uncertainties and tensions. And so, but I think you said it well. I mean, yeah, I think whether that, assuming of the D, there is maybe a little D Democratic coalition, uh, mostly for now in the Democratic Party. But it's also a question, I'm just a practical question. If I, I think if I ask the Biden people, how could I help you guys the most? I mean, practically speaking, not me, but you know, people sort of like me. They'd probably say, you know, don't become a Democrat tomorrow. That's not, we don't, you know, we got, <laughs> we got plenty of Democrats and you just become, a, then you just become another voice and maybe you're a little more moderate. You're, you know, Amy Klobuchar, you're not AOC, but who cares? It's better to have Republicans, ex-Republicans, people who have some credentials of having opposed liberal Democrats in the past uh, and supported Republicans. The way to say, look, on these issues, they're right. You know, on this part, not so much. I, I wouldn't support that. But on the other hand, you got to balance all these things together. So we've had an interesting debate on the Bulwark, which is the uh, website I'm, I'm editor at large I'm associated with, uh, which is uh, part of our Defending Democracy Together organization, but it's independent. I mean, it's it's got some, uh, Jonathan Lass has done a great job editing it. And on HR1, which is the big democracy reform bill that the House passed on a party vote. And we were a little bit, uh, at a, I don't know, we had slightly different analyses, Jonathan Last and Charlie Sykes, I won't go into all the details, but it was basically kind of, look, there's a lot of stuff in that bill that we don't like much. Um, maybe we should, you know, try to get that out and really insist on it getting out. And then Jonathan Last said, look, I'm forgetting it out. But at the end of the day, we also have to make clear that the attempt to roll back voting rights in some states that Republicans control is so urgent and so terrible, would be so damaging to the country uh, that we need to, we may have to swallow a lot of stuff we don't like. And we probably need to say that ahead of time. Otherwise we just end up weakening the coalition that's behind the bill. So, you know, these are really tough kind of practical choices. You don't want to give up everything ahead of time and say, well, we're just part of team Biden and whatever they, you know, they make some foolish decision. We're okay with that. On the other hand, you don't want to kind of go to the opposite extreme and it's sort of everything you do is, gee, this isn't quite the way we would do it. Well, you know what? We're, we didn't win the election. Joe Biden did. And he's got a lot of liberals in his party and they're going to do some stuff we don't like. So how to balance all that? What, where you sort of do say this is urgent and fundamental and we need to sort of be on board and other things. No, we're just going to be kind of a loyal opposition and dissent in some things. Our politics has gotten so polarized and partisan that we're not really used to thinking that way. I do have the feeling that back 20, 30, 40 years ago, this was a more common question. And people like Scoop Jackson, Democrats, who's sort of inclined to support Carter on most things, even though he kind of thought Carter was going in the wrong direction. But then he did oppose one or two of Carter's nominations where he thought they were just too accommodating, too dovish in terms of, in terms of the Soviet Union. And but I remember I was watching from grad school at the time, you know, I wasn't really involved, but you know, that those were, it was tough. I and mean, there were people of good faith who disagreed among themselves about exactly what the right way to, to, to sort of handle this was. But I think they all tried to begin from uh, respect for reality, respect for facts, respect for trying to strengthen democracy at home and abroad. And then you're going to have differences and, and have to make, make judgments. So I, I do think that's the right way to, think about it doesn't it, but thinking about it in the right way doesn't mean you resolve all the questions obviously but i do think yeah i i'm very much on board the kind of it's very important for the country that biden succeed i guess i do come back to that at the end too a lot of conservatives are into well, i'm a conservative so i couldn't do x what does that really mean if you're a conservative you want to conserve 
liberal democracy and you know freedom and markets and so forth uh, in America. And you know it's those consequences that are most important. And it might mean you have to give away give way on a few things that you don't you you don't like that much. But that's really what must be conserved. So I think being pretty practical in a way, pretty hard headed about how to handle this is uh, is important. Final point I've gone on, I guess we should, we'll, 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 we should end soon, but um, it's, you're so much in sports, and I guess I'm sure the other one of you is a sports fan, as I am. The, uh, Tim Miller had a wonderful piece of the ball a couple of months ago, looking back at some trade. I can't remember. It's, it's, he's a big Nuggets fan, so it was some big Nuggets trade. And it's, I don't know, they weren't playing very well because the you know one of the stars who was traded wanted to play the way he had played on whatever team we'd been on the nets. I can't really remember. I don't follow the NBA that much anymore. And, and so, and it was not, not in sync with the, you know, and at some point someone said, look, you know, you're not a net anymore, which had an offense kind of set up for him, I guess, you know, you're a nugget. So, you know what? You were traded. <laughs> Maybe you didn't like being traded, but you were traded. So the best thing for everyone is going to be if you figure out how to be a good nugget player, you know? And I kind of feel like that's kind of where weak people like me are. You know, we kind of got tra- the voters traded us, you know? <laughs> and, and so the question is, doesn't mean you give up your whatever skills you have to use the basketball analogy doesn't mean that maybe the team doesn't change a little bit to accommodate you, but you don't get to go around saying, you know what, for the last 25 years, I was, I believed in ABC and now I'm just going to insist that Joe Biden believe in ABC. That's just silly. really. I think that um, the work that you all are doing at the bulwark is the work that you're talking about existing 40 years ago, Uh, serious minded Mm -hmm. and separating out that distinction that Reagan made uh, so clearly, which is that we don't have uh, our, our political enemies, we have opponents. And I think that we've lost so much of that spirit uh, about having an opponent on an idea. And I, I have to say, I, I think what I love the most about the bulwark is, yes, you engage in the serious discussion about these issues, but it's the optimism that comes through. And I'm wondering if you have that optimism because you feel like the system held or you have that optimism because you feel like it's just good to inject into the world. Yeah. I think most of we have that optimism because most of my colleagues at the Bulwark, Jonathan Lass, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller are like 40 years old. So they're, they're young and optimistic, you know? And so and luckily their spirit dominates, but I know I, I am sort of optimistic. Yeah, we did, you know, the, 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 the system did hold mostly, and I think we remain a very impressive and strong country. And I actually think you see this now with the vaccines and so forth. It gives you a lot of confidence, right? I mean, for all that we, I was saying earlier, Iraq and the financial crisis show we overestimated some of our capabilities. The ability to come back from totally incompetent management, and we paid a huge price, obviously, in the pandemic. But the way in which we're the, we, just the scientific achievement, but not just scientific, logistical and, you know, sort of practical achievement of this, of getting the vaccine done and, and getting it done in a way that's consistent, I would argue, with the kinds of things I believe in, right? I mean, it's 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 a multinational enterprise, globalist enterprise, little German company, big American company, a lot of immigrant scientists, it turns out, actually were key to this, you know, all working together in a way that's really going to do benefit for us and for mankind, humankind. And um, I think we'll get the economy going again. So I, I think Actually, we might be in for it might be a good moment for some optimism. And, and, and America does remain pretty distinctive in its ability to, I think, marshal these forces 
that really do help people. So I, I, yeah, I think the optimism is, is, is genuine and not, not unguarded, but genuine. <laughs> well, Bill, you add a lot, um, you add a lot to the public conversation. So thank you for coming here and, and, and sharing your thoughts with us. Where can our audience find more of you? You know, the organizations you're involved with, where you're writing, where you're speaking. Well, thanks. First of all, I really enjoyed this and, and, and keep up your good work too, and as well as your other, your day jobs and so forth. But um, so the Bulwark is thebulwark.com. That's that's really uh, the, the central place we, 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 we publish. And we try also recommend other things there so that they're good articles in the Atlantic and in Persuasion and the Dispatch in a lot of places. And I think you could, you get led to those by stuff, by the hyperlinks, but also we have recommended readings. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Bill Crystal. And one thing I try to do on Twitter is just recommend good things that I've read elsewhere. And I just link to them and quote a sentence yeah. or two. So <laughs> yeah, you you're know. good on Twitter. We follow you. Thank you. But it's, I think, uh, yeah, people like all the, the alleged witty stuff and all, but honestly, I f- often find talking to people that they say, Hey, thanks for, you know, I didn't know about some piece somewhere and I happened to yeah. come across it. So I try to do that. And then I do the final, I'd say these conversations with Bill Crystal, which are uh, video as well as audio. You could also listen to this podcast. They're longer, uh, an hour and a half, uh, with a lot of them are sort of slightly more academic, um, political philosophy. But for example, I just did one yesterday. It'll be out in a couple of days, out by the time this comes out, uh, with Gary Kasparov, the uh, great former chess champion, who uh, on what's happening in Russia, authoritarianism in general, what Biden could and should do to try to stop that, the progress, unfortunately, or the regress towards authoritarianism. So I think those conversations with Bill Crystal, and that's the conversations with BillCrystal.org, is also, I think they're, they're an attempt to be uh, you know, educational without being, uh, more, you know, but in a lively kind of conversational way. Well, Ed, that was that was a fascinating conversation. He's triple smart. I, you know, I think what I like the most, you know, George Bernard Shaw uh, said that progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. I'm really attracted to people who can back up and look at what's happening and make changes if they need to make them. And he's really got a lifetime of that. For sure. And I I really respect his open-mindedness. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot, you know, it's, it's, do you care about your identity or do you care about the ideas? And and this is why I sometimes push back against this idea, this, this notion of calling yourself a Republican or calling yourself a Democrat. I am this, I am that. Well, no, what are the ideas you stand for? What are the ideas you care about? And if you frame it that way, I think you lower the risk of falling into these traps where you're taking a side because you identify with that side. He's a very good example of this. And um, yeah, I think uh, I, I love that conversation. All right. Should we uh, wrap, wrap up here? Yeah. So uh, this is The Head and the Heart. I'm Perry Rogers. And I'm Ed Borgata. And you can follow us on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Spotify. And follow us over on Twitter. We're at head underscore heart underscore pod. And like all of our podcasts, this one was produced by Casey Morris. Everybody wants to-